It began with a beheading. Or rather, a movie of one, just 18 seconds long. In it, a blindfolded woman in a prim Tudor dress gets marched up to an execution block. She's surrounded by guards holding spears. She kneels. She prays. Then, an executioner raises his axe high, and off goes her head. The year was 1895. The movie was Thomas Edison's silent short, The Execution of Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots. In that grisly decapitation, the very first special effect in movie history also happened to be the first portrayal of a British royal on film. Not the most glamorous movie debut for a queen, but that would change. Just like the monarchy, and just like the medium itself. From Focus Features, welcome to Zoom, the podcast for people who want a closer look at the history and science behind today's movies. I'm film critic Amy Nicholson, and today I want to know everything about Hollywood and the British royal family. Why? The new Downton Abbey movie, which picks up where the TV series left off and ups the ante by forcing Downton's Lord and Lady Grantham to share quarters with none other than King George V and his wife, Queen Mary. A different Queen Mary, by the way. This one keeps her head. It got me wondering, why have movie makers always been so fascinated with Britain's royals? What does the royal family think of the hundreds of movies and TV shows made about them? And how do they manipulate the media themselves? And while we're at it, is being a princess or living in a castle always as awesome as it seems on screen? There was no real indoor plumbing. There was no air conditioning. You didn't wash your clothes. There were dogs and cats and ferrets and whatever weird animals that royals and aristocrats had to pass the time everywhere, and things would get absolutely disgusting really fast. That's Hadley Mears, historian and writer for Biography.com. Today, we're going to hear more from her, as well as royal scholars, best-selling authors, Downton Abbey's official historian, and the creator of Downton himself, Julian Fellows. So fetch your evening gloves and tell your valet to lay out a tux, because we commoners have a dinner date with royalty. When expanding the Downton story to the big screen, Julian Fellows knew his movie needed a big drama at the center of the plot, a crisis that would rattle every character on the estate. There are lots of disasters that would affect everyone, a fire or an epidemic or something. But I didn't want that. I wanted a positive thing that would provoke a reaction from everyone in the building and outside it. And then I was reading a book called Black Diamonds. And in it, there's a visit from King George and Queen Mary. And as I was reading that, I thought, yes, this is it. In the Downton Abbey movie, the year is 1927, and right off the bat, Lord Grantham gets the news. Well, this won't help us to economize. What is it? The king and queen are coming to stay. What? It's an honor. But also, in both the movie and real life, it is an expensive burden. Here's Hadley Mears again. Throughout history, when royals came to visit homes, it was a giant pain in the ass and often could ruin you because all of a sudden you have to pay for all this food, all these places for people to stay, places for their horses to stay. And there are stories of aristocrats literally falling into ruin and losing all of their money because they had to go into so much debt to uh, pay for these royal visits. Julian Fellows agrees. There were certain houses that were more equipped for it than others. I mean, Christopher Sykes was ruined by entertaining King Edward VII. 
He was a great friend of the king and he used to entertain him every year when the king came up for the Doncaster races. And he literally went broke and sold the house. Seems rather a waste of money. Here we go. Isn't that what the monarchy's for? To brighten the lives of the nation with stateliness and glamour? The king and queen might brighten the lives of the nation, but for the people of Downton Abbey, the stakes are high. Everyone on the staff is stressed out. Enough so that Mr. Carson, butler extraordinaire, who has retired after decades of service, volunteers to pitch in for this one last job. I'm glad you're here, Mr. Carson. I must go where my king needs me. But while this drama makes for a hit film today, if you tried to make this exact same film with the exact same story in the 1920s when the Downton Abbey movie takes place, well... Back then, telling a fictional story about a living or recently deceased monarch was illegal in the UK. Yes, illegal. You had to wait till 100 years after their coronation under a royal law called the Lord Chamberlain's Decree. True, Lewis Carroll could invent wild stories about a make-believe Queen of Hearts and her way less important husband. And perhaps people might notice the parallel to Queen Victoria. Imperial Highness, Her Royal Majesty, the Queen of Hearts! But God forbid anyone write about the actual queen. So how did we go from that to today, when practically an entire genre of film and TV is devoted to stories about Britain's current queen? Let's trace the royal family's long, weird waltz with the media, starting in 1576 during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. That's when London's first successful theatre opened. It was called the theater, because for a while it didn't have any competition. The queen never attended. She didn't want to go out in public and risk catching plague. But she did enjoy the occasional private show. Elizabeth would often request that the king's players, which was Shakespeare's group, perform certain plays that she'd either heard about or she'd seen before. And it was said, especially in her old age, she took a lot of comfort in seeing these plays that she found familiar. You know, like we'd watch the same episode of Arrested Development over and over again. Shakespeare, I have you on demand. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Actually, Elizabeth would make literal demands of the bard. said Elizabeth particularly loved the character of Falstaff um, from the Henry V series and that she asked Shakespeare for a romance. So he wrote The Merry Wives of Windsor in only 14 days, which is really amazing. But when the queen demands, you go to it, you hop to it. I mean, that makes the queen kind of like an old-fashioned Hollywood movie boss. Yeah, I guess Elizabeth was also like a producer, you know, and she was just Louis V. Mayer asking for a romance in 14 days. Still, Shakespeare knew better than to write a play about Elizabeth. See, a British queen wasn't just head of state. She was also head of the church, which made her and her family doubly sacred. Because for centuries, British writers were forbidden to make up stories about religious figures, too. When Shakespeare's pal Ben Jonson did write a play about Elizabeth, a satire called The Isle of Dogs, her men put him in jail. They shut down his theater, and, for good measure, they shut down every other theater in London. We don't even know exactly what the Queen objected to in Isle of Dogs, because no copies of it survive. But 200 years later, another queen happily volunteered to be represented in the new media of her day. And here to tell us all about her is Downton Abbey's official historical advisor, Alistair Bruce, a man who's been obsessed with the royals pretty much since birth. 
I was a bit of a worry for my mum and dad, really. I think they longed to have someone who wanted to go and play football. What they discovered was a son who constantly went down to buy clay in order to shape it into the form of the crown jewels that anyone can go and see on display in the Tower of London. And among his favourite royals is Queen Victoria, a woman most of us think of as a stuffy square, but who was actually pretty tech-savvy. Queen Victoria's life was one of enormous change. She came to the throne in 1837, quite soon after the Industrial Revolution had really set itself down in Britain. You see the film cameras come in, and, you know, she embraces that. She sits with her husband, Prince Albert, for a daguerreotype, which is the first type of photograph. She then sits for photographs. In fact, she loves photographs. Victoria really loved photographs. And not just because they were cool new technology. In a whirlwind century, she realized her mass-produced, calm, regal image could give her subjects a sense of stability, something timeless and reassuring. Their monarch. So she posed for photos, learned to take them, and even had a darkroom installed in her private castle. Let me repeat that. In the 19th century, dowdy old Victoria had a darkroom in her castle. She allowed photos of her and her family to be packaged and sold. And at the turn of the century, when movies came along, she asked filmmakers to shoot her Diamond Jubilee Parade. That extravagant footage seen around the world kicked off royal movie mania. Hollywood churned out silent movies like Ivanhoe or Douglas Fairbanks and Richard the Lionhearted. And in 1933 came the first British film ever nominated for a Best Picture Oscar, The Private Life of Henry VIII. Stop it, ma'am. What would you call ma'am? I should call you, Your Majesty, a man. (laughs) So I am, I'm glad of it. (laughs) But all these flicks were still about monarchs of the distant past. Britain's ban on portraying modern royals remained in full effect. Even America, which had basically fought a revolutionary war for the right to tell any story we pleased about British monarchs, wouldn't make a movie about, say, the recently deceased Victoria, because it couldn't be screened in the lucrative British market. Even so, though, the royal family knew when it was time to cozy up to the media. This is Windsor Castle, His Royal Highness Prince Edward. 1936. Earlier that year, George V, king of the Downton Abbey era, had died. But his heir, Edward, abdicated the throne because the government and the church would not let him marry his girlfriend, an American divorcee. That I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. For the royal family, it was an unprecedented public embarrassment. God bless you all. God save the king. But lucky for the royals, right around the same time, some smart film producers realized it was almost the 100-year anniversary of Queen Victoria's coronation. The ban on telling Victoria stories was about to expire. Time to make a movie. It was called Victoria the Great. And Britain's stuttering new king, George VI, not only gave the film his blessing, he let the filmmakers shoot at Windsor Castle, Kensington Palace, Buckingham Palace, St. Paul's Cathedral. He let them use the actual carriage Queen Victoria rode at her Diamond Jubilee and let them read her actual diaries. 
The result is a fascinating example of damage control. Basically, the royal family's way of saying, hey, we're just like you. It's the story of a bossed-around, bullied teenager who suddenly turned into the leader of the free world. Europe on the verge of war, England on the verge of revolution, and a girl on the throne. An unknown girl of 18, with no will of her own. Oh, Victoria has a will of her own, all right. And she needs it because everyone is pressuring her to get married. Lord Melbourne, if you were speaking of marriage again, it's not to be thought of. Not for three or four years at least. But, Mom, the country is looking for an heir. At first, the teen queen rejects her future husband because he's totally lame. Albert, that young man, straight-laced, bookish, self-willed, goes to bed immediately after dinner every night and never dances. He won't do. But of course, after a meet-cute and several flustered attempts at fending off the inevitable, the two fall in love. And unlike Prince Edward and his divorcee, no one has to abdicate the throne. At the end, during a recreation of Victoria's Diamond Jubilee Parade, the film bursts into color, like Dorothy landing in Oz. Victoria the Great was a giant hit, even spawned a sequel the following year. The royal family's honor was restored. You'd think after that, the House of Windsor might have unshackled filmmakers to make even more contemporary Buckingham biopics. But the Lord Chamberlain's 100-year rule stayed in place until 1968. Which is not to say that the next generation of monarchs didn't get a lot of time on screen. It was just, at first, on the small screen. The moment of the Queen's crowning is come. In 1953, Elizabeth II was crowned Queen of England and symbolically became the first Queen of Reality TV. University of London film professor Mandy Merck says that before that ceremony, TV was just a newfangled luxury. When the Queen's coronation was televised, it was the first such broadcast. And it was in the early 50s when people in Britain largely didn't own TV sets and a great number of them went out and bought one in order to see the coronation. It was a huge deal. I mean, how many people watched it? Millions around the world. Most of the British public. Including a young Julian Fellows. It was just before my fourth birthday. We watched the television on this tiny little black and white postage stamp, and we watched the whole thing. I remember being impressed by the kind of scale of it, that she was the epicentre of this incredible operation. And, of course, like millions of others, that was it. We never were without a television again. Queen Elizabeth's coronation was planned as such a giant media spectacle, the monarchy had to borrow extra carriages for it. Fake ones, originally built to be, yes, movie props. And those carriages were probably the most comfortable ones at all, because the Queen has said in a recent documentary about the coronation how deeply uncomfortable the real gilt coach is because it doesn't have anything like contemporary suspension. It's an 18th century vehicle. True. Here's Queen Elizabeth herself last year talking about that official coronation carriage. Her interviewer, our chum, Downton Abbey's own historian, Alistair Bruce. Horrible. It's not meant for traveling in at all. <clears throat> I mean, it's just not, it's only sprung on leather. So it rocks around a lot. It's not very comfortable. Were you in it for a long time, Halfway around London. Really? By the way, the BBC negotiated with Buckingham Palace for 22 years before the Queen agreed to sit for that interview. Though technically, Alistair stresses it was not an interview. 
Buckingham Palace have consistently said that the Queen will give no interviews. So in my conversation, I wasn't asking her any direct questions. I made observations and she made observations. I might argue that were you in it for a long time counts as a direct question. But if Alistair hasn't gotten in trouble for it yet, I'm not going to rat on him. I loved the conversation because, you know, you really get a sense of her sense of humour. I asked her, for instance, at one point, what Prince Charles and Princess Anne, who were her two young children at the time, were doing during the coronation. So there was a pause and she said, No idea, I wasn't there. No. I wasn't there. <laughs> I have no idea what they did. And of course, of course she didn't know. And I looked such an idiot. Speaking of looking bad, here's a possible reason the Queen was so skittish about appearing on TV. In the late 1960s, when TV was now dominant, in part thanks to her, the Queen invited a TV crew to shoot a documentary about life at the castle. Maybe they expected to see the Queen in a bubble bath wearing the crown. Instead, they saw her barbecuing sausages. They learned that Prince Philip called her cabbage. In one scene, the Queen stuck her pinky in Prince Charles's salad dressing and said, oily. The ratings were phenomenal. The reviews were horrible. Once again, Professor Mandy Mark. This was somewhat controversial at the time. The idea of letting daylight into magic, as the phrase goes, was always seen as a possible way of reducing the mystique of the royal family and making people think that maybe they weren't worth the money and the attention and the special political status. Famed British nature show host David Attenborough, already a famous anthropologist at the time, agreed. He wrote an angry letter to the BBC accusing it of, quote, killing the monarchy. Wrote Attenborough, quote, The whole institution depends on mystique and the tribal chief in his hut. If any member of the tribe ever sees inside the hut, then the whole system of the tribal chiefdom is damaged, and the tribe eventually disintegrates. As in, this documentary could destroy England. Royal family was royally banned. I can't play a clip of it because the queen essentially locked it in a vault. But right around the time it premiered, her public image was the target of another wild tribe. British comedians. Good morning from the Pool of London, where on a cold, wet and windy morning, we're eagerly awaiting the departure of Her Majesty the Queen. A new generation of 60s comics mocked the relentlessly positive news broadcast that passed for political coverage of the royals. Here's a young David Frost imagining how newscasters might describe the Queen on a sinking ship. And now the Queen, smiling radiantly, is swimming for her life. Her Majesty's wearing a silk ensemble in Canary <laughs> Most audiences laughed, but enough protested that Frost decided to leave England for America, where he famously sat down with Nixon for the Frost-Nixon interviews. But the fight swayed the UK to finally abolish the Lord Chamberlain's decree. No more censoring stories about the living queen. When the Chamberlain's role was abolished in the Theatres Act in 1968, the first impulse in British television was to do satirical cameos of the Queen. Which meant fantastic freedom for a TV comedy troupe called Monty Python's Flying Circus, who would interrupt their own skits with jokes about, for instance, the Queen watching the show. And we've just heard that Her Majesty the Queen has just tuned into this program, and so she is now <laughs> watching this royal sketch here in this royal set. 
The actor on the left is wearing the great grey suit of the BBC wardrobe department. And the other actor is about to deliver the first great royal joke here this royal evening. Over to the right, you can see the royal cameraman. And behind... Oh, we just heard she's switched over. She's watching news at 10. But Elizabeth wasn't the first member of the royal family to have a movie made about her while she was alive. That honor went fittingly to Princess Diana, a teenager whose arrival on the scene turned the Windsors into a melodrama. She went from being this 19-year-old girl who marries a prince. It's like a fairy tale, you know, and then it isn't. She finds out he is having an affair. They have a terrible, terrible divorce, you know, and then she dies. And then eventually Charles does go in and marry the third arm of that love triangle. Jessica Morgan writes the Royal Roundup blog on her fashion website, Go Fug Yourself. She also co-wrote The Royal We, a bestseller about a fictional Kate Middleton-style romance. So obviously, Diana's life had like a very, as much as you hate to say this about a human being, it did have like a real narrative arc to it that I think people responded to because that's how we've learned how to understand stories, essentially. I think it kind of like scratches your story itch in a way that makes you very infested in the rest of her family. I mean, I think it's kind of a perfect tragedy. It's very sad. Princess Diana's life was so made for TV that right after she married Prince Charles, two made-for-TV movies about her came out in the same week. She was destined to lead the greatest love affair of our time. Diana, Prince Charles. She would win the heart of a prince. I want to share my life with you. And the love of a nation. You're going to be the queen of England. Theirs was a fairy tale romance come true. Catherine Oxenberg stars The Royal Romance of Charles and Diana. Next. These were TV movies made in America for Americans. But after Diana's death, the floodgates opened on British TV, too. Movies with titles like Whatever Love Means dared to imagine intimate fights between Charles and Diana over his love for Camilla Parker Bowles. It's inappropriate, Charles! dare you tell me what's inappropriate? I don't want you to see her again. No one tells me who I can and cannot see. What did you do? Movies like this don't feel like totally fair depictions of the royal couple. But are they that much different than Hollywood celebrity tell-alls? I think part of the difference is movie stars have chosen this life and royals are born into it. You don't have a choice as to what you're going to be, period. That's it. You're going to be the king. And you don't really have that much power anymore. But if you wanted to be like a veterinarian, like, tough luck, buddy. At least these schlocky divorce movies did manage to leave the queen herself out of it. But in 2006, director Stephen Frears defied tradition and made history with his movie, The Queen, the first fiction film about a living British monarch. In it, Elizabeth struggles with the death of Diana. And in this scene, she wonders about her own complicity. We encouraged the match. We signed off on it, both of us. You were very enthusiastic, remember? She was a nice girl. Then. And I was sure he'd give the other one up. Or at least make sure his wife told the line. Isn't that what everyone does? Is it? And while it did demystify the monarchy, this movie also humanized it. People wrote the Queen afterwards to say... I had no idea how difficult that week of mourning was for you when the Queen had famously not wanted to leave Scotland and participate in the mass grief, the flower arrangements and so forth, the big processions around Buckingham Palace and had not wanted there to be a state funeral for Diana. The film sets out why she doesn't want that. So in Britain, after the Queen, anyone could make anything about the royal family. 
At the opening of the 2012 London Olympics, which happened to coincide with Elizabeth's own Diamond Jubilee year, director Danny Boyle convinced Elizabeth to shock even her own heirs by pretending to skydive into the stadium with James Bond. Never can Her Majesty have been introduced to her public in a manner like that. And the crowd have loved it. Soon after, the BBC broadcast a film that would have been unthinkable even 15 years ago, an adaptation of the play King Charles III that opens with Queen Elizabeth's death. At last, my life has been a lingering for the throne. The queen is dead. Long live the king. That's me. It is a play wherein, essentially... Kate Middleton is sort of like a schemy schemer who's very smart. And she's a little Lady Macbethian. And she sort of schemes her way into displacing Charles and getting William on the throne. Consider all of this Ben Johnson's revenge. Or perhaps his revenge is just the fact that our modern Queen Elizabeth is now constantly bombarded with movies about her family. In films from Victoria and Abdul to Mary, Queen of Scots. Is that weird? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Basically, if she sees Mary, Queen of Scots, she's seeing Saoirse Ronan playing her great, 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 great grandmother. Yeah. Most people don't have movies about those people. And she has to watch her get beheaded. Yeah. It's intense. But you know what? That's like 300 years ago. I think it would be probably easier to sort of divorce yourself from that. I'm trying to imagine watching a movie with my 11th grade grandmother getting beheaded. If I seek to help your enemies... Tis only because you pushed me to their arms. And should you murder me, remember you murder your sister. And you murder your queen. So now we can make movies about any royalty we want. The question is, how accurate are they? Or rather, how accurate do we really want them to be? Well, it kind of depends on what era is being depicted. For example, in a movie like The Other Boleyn Girl, with its love triangle between Natalie Portman, Scarlett Johansson, and Eric Bana's Henry VIII, the King's Palace looks kind of sexy. But historian Hadley Mears says, you are lucky the movie did not come with a scratch and sniff card. A scratch and sniff <laughs> card would include a lot of excrement smells, a lot of smells of ammonia, a lot of weird kind of medicinal smells of different herb salves and other things that they would use, you know, to treat like their untreated syphilis or all the weird sores they had on their bodies from wearing the same clothes over and over again. Gross, like, fishy smells for various reasons. And then, like, there were things called rushes that they would put all along the floor that would be sweet-smelling, you know, lavender, roses and stuff, and that was to try and hide the stink. So there would be occasional whiffs of good things as well. And I would assume Anne Boleyn, though she did stink, probably wore... Some kind of fine French perfume or something, since she was a highly, highly cultured lady who had grown up in the French court. Oh, and Henry VIII had disgusting, pus-filled abscesses a lot of times, especially on his legs. So whatever pus smells like. Oh, God. Hadley. <laughs> so it would be disgusting. <laughs> it would be so gross. But, I mean, when you're watching a movie, who wants to see that stuff? Fair enough. What we want to see is the world Julian Fellows creates in the Downton Abbey movie. One that's lovely, presumably good-smelling, and also accurate. Thanks in part, once again, to the obsessions of Alistair Bruce. 
I'm a complete nightmare. I'm like a mosquito. I buzz around all the wonderful people who do the props and, you know, the amazing creative team that put together the whole set and who designed the clothes. But I'm just there to be avuncular, supportive, and make sure that we get detail right. One detail he was responsible for was teaching the actors playing King George and Queen Mary how to seem like monarchs. The secret? They didn't have to. That was all the other actors' jobs. When we're on set and an actor asks me, so, you know, what do I need to do to convey kingship? I say, you can't do anything. The others have got to regard and behave towards you as though you are the king. And that way you'll become the king. Julian Fellows agrees. The moment you try to act your rank, you diminish it. I mean, it's rather like uh, the moment anyone says, do you know who I am? They have immediately lost their status. You just have to act normally and let everyone else give you that status. Some characters in Downton Abbey handle the presence of the king and queen with dignity. Your majesties, welcome to Downton Abbey. Others act like fanboys. My heart is fit to burst, I don't mind telling you. I shall have fed the king emperor from my own shop. If only my father were alive, he'd be so proud of me. He would. This is the peak of my career. Well, the peak of my life, really. But regardless, it's pretty clear. It's not who the king and queen are that makes them royal. It's how everyone around them, how we, the audience, react to them. Which is maybe why, from theater to photography to TV to film, British monarchs have tried to control their image from the throne. So we don't try to kick them off it. And instead, we just enjoy watching their rarefied lives unfold from our own seats. In the movie theater. Zoom is produced by Focus Features. It was written and hosted by me, Amy Nicholson. Our senior producer and senior editor is Rico Galliano. He also portrayed our David Attenborough. Stephen Cologne engineered, editing and sound design by Jake Gorski. Our regal original music was composed by Martin Oswick. Production assistance was provided by Zach Vasquez, and Kim Troxell is our fabulous graphic designer. I'm Amy Nicholson. Till next time, stay curious. <laughs> <laughs>